Hi, everybody. This is Stephen. Uh, the episodes that are now being published for Walking Through the Book have actually been sitting for quite a long time, and this is one of them. I wanted to note before we started that this was recorded at an event called Profitable for Teaching, which is hosted near Russellville, Alabama. My recording settings at this time were not set on a high quality, <laughs> and uh, if that wasn't bad enough, I'm very close to the mic at the start of this, so I'm sort of screaming at you for a little while, uh, and I won't blame you if you skip ahead, but I do encourage you to listen to the main parts of this episode, especially uh, what uh, the others had to say, Bryant and Jeremy and Eric and Michael and uh, grateful for them being a part of this. You know, this took place back in October of 2019. I really found it to be a very depthful and interesting study of Exodus chapters 11 and 12, uh, pivotal, pivotal chapters in that book. And uh, generally, we hope you keep listening because, Lord willing, we have many episodes yet to come. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 400 and thirty years. At the end of four hundred and thirty years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Steve McCrary. And I'm Brian Bales. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Exodus chapters 11 and 12 today. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading. Uh, we want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we want to emphasize what the text says. No more and no less. Uh, we're so thankful for you taking the time to be with us, whether you are commuting, whether you are listening at home. Uh, it certainly is a, a joy for us to be able to share the Word of God with you, and we hope that uh, this time together is not wasted. Uh, before we start, we do want to introduce our guests today. Uh, this is a special episode of Walking Through the Book, and uh, you know, we're, again, we're just sort of trying to catch up on our recordings, Bryant. It's been kind of a quiet year for Walking Through the Book so far, but uh, but we're grateful for this opportunity. We're here at uh, Profil for Teaching at Rustic Youth Camp in uh, Bell Green, Alabama, and uh, got some good fellows with us today. Why don't you fellows introduce yourselves? Michael Valenzuela from the Savannah, Georgia area. I'm Jeremy Hodges. I'm in Riverdale, Maryland. I'm Eric Russell. I'm from a small town in South Central Kentucky, Burksville, Kentucky is the town. Okay. Yeah, and, and we're really glad to, for y'all to be with us, and uh, always is a joy for us to uh, involve other fellows that are here. Like, I think we've done this. This is the third year we've done this? Yeah, I think it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, before we do start as well, we want to let you know how to get in touch with us. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. If you search at Walking Through the Book, you'll find us there. You can also email us at walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. You can also find this podcast and other podcasts hosted on the website of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. And that website is northcolumbuschristians.com. Uh, Bryant, why don't you, as usual, go over the flow of the program and tell everybody how to get in touch with you as well. 
Yeah, so uh, I preach with the uh, Garden City Church of Christ on the western side of Savannah, Georgia. Um, we have a new website, strivingforthefaith.org. Um, that'll give you directions, it'll give you the address, and uh, kind of help you get a feel for what to expect when you're visiting. Um, so if you're ever in the area, touristing or anything like that, um, we love to hear from you. Um, it's for the uh, flow of the program. So we just try to keep it, like Stephen was saying, very simple with just trying to respect the Word of God as it's written and just trying to focus on the lessons that we can gain from meditating and thinking on the Word. So we always try to start just by reading and after reading, making some initial observations. And that might include um, things we maybe did not notice so much before reading it. Um, it may be things we have noticed before but are just important to take note of. Uh, after that, we'll look at themes and uh, That'll involve maybe things that connect to the broader story of the Exodus. It may connect to things we've read before in Genesis. Um, it could be things that we recognize are overarching themes through the Old Testament or things that are fulfilled in Jesus, things we see in the church. Um, and the final phase of our discussion will be uh, trying to make applications from the text. And that's where um, we try to find um, lessons that uh, can change us, things that we can um, have to change our way of thinking, or just some kind of application to where the reading can become more real in a practical way. Absolutely. And we've decided to break up our reading today uh, between all three of our guests. Uh, Michael will be reading uh, chapter 11, and then we've broken up chapter 12 between uh, Jeremy and Eric. And uh, so we invite you to listen to that just to get us back into the mindset of what's happening. Remember the last episode we talked about the plagues leading up to this final plague. And remember Moses is, is on the Lord's side seeking to free his people from the grips of Pharaoh under the harsh slavery they've endured. In the, in the scope of the initial plagues, we see Egypt legitimately and earnestly destroyed. And even Pharaoh's own aides are saying, can't you see that Egypt is lost? Mm -hmm. And so now we're seeing the fulfillment of all these things that God has, has said would come to pass. I will free my people. I will, you know, uh, let Pharaoh know that I'm God.
Exodus 11, from the English Standard Version. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. <clears throat> Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as, such as there has never been, nor will, ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all your people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he, and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then Pharaoh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Exodus chapter 12, from the New American Standard. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished a male a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave it over till morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, 
and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, You shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened, and all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel, the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord gives Lord will When you enter the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised you shall observe this right And when your children say to you what does this right mean to you you shall say it is a passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshiped Continuing in verse 28, in the New American Standard. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. There was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said and go. And bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from from the Egyptian articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given all... Man, I keep messing up. Verse 36. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight 
of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about the six hundred thousand men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened, since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was four hundred and fifty years. And at the end of four hundred and thirty years, to the very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt, this night is for the Lord, to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. But every man's slave purchased with money after you have, have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. So one thing I noticed, and I, I don't know, I, I don't know if this is going on beforehand. I'm trying to remember in our reading. Um, I, one thing that just kind of hit me at the end of chapter 12 is I think I think this is the first time we see it mentioned that the children of Israel did everything you know did uh, did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Yeah, that's and, and that's that's going to be a commonality. Well, we're going to see that over and over. Over you know even into Leviticus and sometimes in Numbers, <laughs> but uh, so that's that's kind of cool that we see them uh, act actively you know in 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 context of what the Lord has commanded being active with this because up till this they've been suffering and I think it's important that we notice that um, that was just one thing that that kind of jumped out at me there. Um, anybody have any thoughts on that or yeah go ahead. Them observing all the things that Moses and Aaron instructed is going to become the theme. But I, I think it's interesting that it says this because this is when they actually become a nation. And so it is fitting that at the birth of the nation, functionally, is obedience. 
they are not really the people of God like this until they do all the things that Moses and Aaron say. Absolutely. That's very good observation. There's, there's a nature to that obedience too. you know, like everything they've seen up to this point, the purity of now, how clear it is that Egypt is ruined by God's jealousy for them, how valuable their redemption is to God and how fearful it is that God is willing not only to destroy the land, but the people of Egypt, the firstborn, you know, and this terror that their firstborn would be vulnerable if they were not obedient, you know, so there's this understanding of the great graciousness of God, the judgment of God, the terror of God. But with all of those things, there's this understanding of this very specific jealousy to redeem them into his own people as well. So it's, it's an obedience motivated by a, a, a very carefully crafted understanding of God. Absolutely. The pride of mankind has been toppled. We talked last episode about how this has just been a steady downfall of, you know, this is what God does to a proud man. And this is what we've seen happen to, uh, to Pharaoh. Mike, you had something? Over and over again, the, through 12, you see so many specifics noted. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the unleavened bread with bitter herbs, right. uh, the consu- con- consumption of the lamb, the, um, the blood and what to do with the blood and everything like that. It's just there's specifics and then they're obedient to the specifics. Yeah. It's not like they're just obedient to some vague thing, but they're actually being obedient to what God is specifically saying. Right. Which makes sense if they're supposed to keep this... For the entirety of their existence as a nation. This is, it says you're going to do this forever because this is the day I did this. Part of their national identity, part of who they are at their very core is wrapped up in this celebration. Right. Which, of course, leads to the other thing that you're going to be yeah, talking about yeah, later. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's interesting too, though, that in the, in the scope of this, you have the freedom of Israel being really instated here while Egypt suffers really, uh, I mean, arguably the ultimate blow. We were talking a little bit about before we recorded, like, you know, which plague is the worst, but I mean, the death of the firstborn is pretty intense. I mean, the sense that, uh, you know, uh, this, this verse always jumps out at me, 11, six, then there should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. I mean, that, that, and you can only, you know, imagine that sort of cry and what that sounded like, uh, the number of people who, and, and, and did the Egyptians really, I mean, there must've been Egyptians that believed that this was going to happen or saw this was going to happen. One of the things that's connected with that, that I really love in this is he specifically says that he's going to do this in eleven seven so that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, what's really cool is what you said earlier, that they only have the distinction when they are obedient, because it is when he sees the blood that is, of course, the product of their obedience that he passes over. So what is the result of that, this distinction that he makes between his people and them? It says that they went out with a mixed congregation. That means when they leave out, there are a lot of Egyptians that go with them. So God says, I'm going to make a distinction. The people who are his people obey and are demonstrated to be different. But what is the result of that? That some of the Egyptians come with them. Egyptians whose firstborn had died went with them. You know, if that blow would not create a final sense of, I surrender, 
you know, like I've got nothing left here anymore. One thing that kind of stands out at least is the provision that's being made. So like in verse tw- in chapter 12, verse 4, you have the provision for the poor uh, oh, that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And then as they're leaving yeah. Egypt, they're being provided for in the financial sense. As they're leaving, they're getting all this gain and wealth from Egypt. So the provision is being made for the saints. And I'll go back to what you said a minute ago too about the fear that was there. And, and and I know we'll talk more about this as well, but you put yourselves in that in, those, in their shoes for just a moment and think about your own firstborn. What would you do to protect them? You would be right. obedient to all the laws that are given to you to protect oh, your so firstborn. Yeah, that's great. What, what, you'd want to protect them. But but see, that goes back to something we mentioned in the last episode, Brian, that this, this is all on the shoulders of Pharaoh. Right. He is responsible for this. Right. The pride of this man is what's responsible for this. You know, it's really not, it's really not God when you think about it. You know, I I recognize in the text and the way you read it, you know, it has to be God. I mean, God does it supernaturally. But, you know, one other thing we mentioned, I'd love uh, uh, the takes of our guests on this. Um, You know, we kind of talked about it. I can't think of a time after this in the Bible where God directly supernaturally acts to uh to harm a nation like he does with egypt i i i mean there's times where he supernaturally saves his people on the battlefield we see that going on but 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 everything after this as far as taking stuff down and nations down it seems providential but i may be i may be missing something the closest thing i think that we have to this event is when the ark is taken by the philistines But notice what the Philistines say about the ark. Don't harden your hearts like Egypt did. Get rid of that mess. That's that paraphrase, obviously. But the idea that they were still so afraid of what God could do, they remembered what God had done to Egypt and said, we've got to make this God happy. So another thing I noticed, um, kind of just a, a minor thing, but how Moses's position and the position of the Israelites in Egypt had just been totally turned opposite, you know, like chapter 11, uh, you know, just emphasizes that Moses was exalted in Egypt. Verse seven mentions not even a dog will bark against uh, any of the people of Israel. Um, when it mentions that God will make a distinction and just how it began with Moses, even having this fear of approaching Pharaoh in the first place, being somebody who had to run from Egypt uh, because of his fear and shame in the first place. And, you know, the the Israelites feeling like God was setting them up for failure by even speaking to Pharaoh in the first place when Moses first approached him. You know, and just how things are at this point. It just shows how God, God is able to vindicate his people. He is able to exalt his people. One of the interesting things that we read about in chapter 11 is the response that Moses gives. And then it says, all these servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me saying, go out, you and the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. What's interesting is that this is actually, it's seemingly a response to what is said in chapter 10 to Moses by Pharaoh. In 28, he says, Get away from me. Beware that you do not see my face again, for the 
for the day that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, you are right. I shall never see your face again. Now that feels like the end of that conversation, but it seems like you have some information that's interjected in here. And Moses's response seems to be in 11, eight. He says, oh, I'll go out. Okay. But I'm going to go out when your people tell me to get out. Another observation I, I see in this that I, that I just it jumps out at me it has to do with the character of God. Mm. And what I mean by that is when God says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. Mm. And what I see in that is, is chapter 11 is this is coming. Mm. And what do you see happen in chapter 12? Mm. The very events He promised. Mm. With this, you see the character of God. And, and when God says something, it's going to happen. And you can apply this throughout the whole Bible. Right. God means what He says. Right. And that should be a warning for us today. And I know we'll talk more about how we can apply this to ourselves today later, but that should be a big warning for us. The opportunity to teach the children, I think, is important in this. Yeah. That's a theme that will continue not only throughout 13, but throughout the entirety of the law is when they do the different things of the law, the children have an opportunity to ask the parents, why do you do this? They have the responsibility of answering the child, this is why we do this. And of course, the famous passage that uh, Eric is looking at, uh, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, which has all of this, uh, it's tied into their love of God. When they truly love God with all their everything, they will tell their children about all the things that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Exodus and going to be you know more in the themes but the amount of memorials that are set up in exodus you know is very interesting that god is trying to do everything in a way that it can be remembered and perpetuated and i, I love the simplicity as well like god is doing such complicated large-scale things but what israel is being commanded are things of shelter and simplicity you know so he's not commanding them to do anything extravagant or great it's just it's simple instruction that gives you shelter, and it's a celebration of this of the simplicity of that shelter that was offered. I was just kind of just even the scene, just imagining, you know, you just imagine the condition of Egypt, and then the darkness they had just experienced that could be felt, and you have this moment of light, and you imagine the rumors that would be circulating around Egypt about this final plague that was about to happen, and just imagine you begin seeing. Israel doing these strange things like thousands of households putting the blood on their doorposts and closing their doors. And you imagine just the horror, you know, as the night goes on, you know, as they, they see all of this happening and then their firstborn dies and they just hear the wailing. And It's like people coming out of their house after a tornado rips through the town. Mm. You know, that, that's just that there's that shock factor of what just happened. Right. Yeah, and I think you kind of see that with the Egyptians in this. Right. The shock factor is so much that Pharaoh not only tells them to leave, not only tells them to leave in the manner in which he had argued against since the very beginning, but he also says, and bless me also. That is a broken, is a broken man right there. That is so good. Yeah, I love that. Because that shows that God, without harming the individual, can absolutely break their spirit completely. This is a very small note, but I think it may be worth noting. Verse 3. The lamb was to be taken on the 10th day of the month and kept until the 14th day of the month in verse 6. So you're choosing your lamb in advance 
and you're keeping it and holding it until the designated time and then you're slaughtering it. And I think that has some thematic implications that I think are easy to overlook related to Jesus, which obviously not getting into at this point, but just like it's amazing the details of all of this. There's so many details. And I think one of the amazing things is just noticing more details each time and just being able to notice in those details just more depth in the simplicity of everything. Well, just the basic sense that when he actually talks to the elders of Israel, it doesn't just simply say he went to the elders of Israel and told them everything the Lord had said. Mm-hmm. It almost repeats. I mean, he doesn't repeat everything verbatim, mm-hmm. but it still, still repeats quite a lot. And uh, which, you know, for the reader, it helps to understand that, like, you know, we're seeing to the detail of what is being repeated. So we can appreciate that. So uh, not only do we want to see what's going on immediately in the context, we want to see what's going on in terms of the whole picture of the Bible. We want to try to tie threads together in different parts of Scripture because that will strengthen our view of the Scripture and understand that this is indeed a a harmonious uh, book and uh, not just Exodus but the context of the whole Bible. So, um, you know, some things, and you, you just mentioned right before that last section, uh, the fact that you have uh, the lamb in chapter 12. You're, you're taking that lamb, you're holding on to it until the designated time. Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, what is it, Galatians 4, 1? Uh, maybe I'm getting that reference completely wrong. But in Galatians, uh, in, the, in the due time, on the fullness of time, Jesus came. Galatians 4, 4. 4, 4. I knew it was 4. Um. Yeah, the fullness of time had come. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. I think that's that's the most obvious, you know, parallel there to what you're saying. And I think when you talk about that lamb, one of the the two key words in that is verse five. This lamb is without blemish. It's speaking, as we know, of Christ. You know, we make that reference of Christ being the Passover lamb without blemish. It, it speaks so much of who he is and what he's done and how much more that sacrifice is something so pure and so innocent. Mm, yeah. Mm. Uh, the reference for that one uh, is in first Peter one nineteen. It specifically says is a lamb unblemished. So Peter picks up those threads and uses them later. Right. Precisely. So have you guys thought about how this is the only sacrifice that you didn't have to go to a priest for, that this is, it's the people, the families themselves. So this is a congregational, the families are sacrificing the lamb, not the priest. 
And I think that's a type of Christ as well. Jeremy's scrunching his face like he, he thinks elsewise. I'm thinking about this. I'm not sure <laughs> that's me, the case. Okay, let me let me show no, you. They went, no, I'm, they went to, yeah. I'm let me pretty sure. Connection I'm aware of. Uh, Zechariah 12, um, I think, is a relation to this pretty explicitly with the uh, households. Um, Zechariah 12. This is where there's messianic promises just kind of being stacked one on top of the other, um, and it mentions. Uh, in verse 10, I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Uh, but then the next phrase is, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a, over a firstborn, which I think is a Passover uh, reference. But then in verse 11, that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Riman in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself. And I think that's the idea. Well, okay, it says they will look on him who they had pierced. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, that is quoted in very close proximity in the John's account of the crucifixion to the bone won't be broken. Mm -hmm. So the Passover connection in Ezekiel is, is, it goes all the way to John. That's good. Yeah, because John makes the same connection. But as far as, I, the only thing I was making him a face about is they weren't allowed to do it at home. They actually had to go to Jerusalem to do it. I just preached on this. Yeah, that's right. I yes. just preached on this yes. on Sunday, and I was noting that... I want to, I don't have my phone on me to, to look at the passage. No, I was just reading that. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. they actually have... Because they go to their homes afterward. Now, they yeah. eat it at home, but they, I don't know if it said that the priest had to kill it. No, I don't. I don't think the priest killed it, but I do. I do know that in Deuteronomy it does specify they've got to go to the place where God's name is. Yeah, they're not. They're not allowed to do it at home. They actually have to go specifically to Passover. Uh, it'll be when in Deuteronomy. It's probably Deuteronomy. It's in sixteen. It doesn't say who kills it. It doesn't say that. But it says that you return to your tents after you are engaged in the in the okay in the feast. So it might it might still stand from the original Exodus law though that the families had to get their own land. Yes, I think that's probably the case. Yeah. Where is it in John where it says not a bone would be broken? I want to write down that reference in my Bible in Exodus. <sighs> it's in it's in chapter nineteen. It's in, is it? Yeah, it's in nineteen. Verse thirty-six. Yes, that's it. Yes. Which is a quotation is, from Exodus twelve forty-six. Right, but look in verse thirty-seven. It's got yeah. your Zechariah twelve quote. So. John puts the two together. John makes that case for us. And it's just like one of those things where you just, you put those things together and it's like God's word is of such clear divine origin. I mean, just astonishing. So another thing on that note, have you guys also thought about how this is a law before the law? Yeah, this is the cornerstone before the law, which is just like Jesus died as the law before the law. Like his death was undergirding everything that would later come to the apostles, right? So the Passover is a law of itself before there was ever a law that was given to Israel. Just like the memorial feast is something he implemented before the new covenant came into being. Yes. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so he command he said this is the new covenant in my blood. Oh, the law and before he, the law. He does the law before the law. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs>
Eric, you're just it. you're in the way right now. <laughs> you're, you're going to get hit. <laughs> Should we change speed so you guys can hit each other? <laughs> that is so good. The Passover connections to um, everything, unreal. everything in the crucifixion, yeah, everything in the new law. It's it's so incredibly rich. Yes, um, unbelievable. This is probably going to get cut and should maybe should be. I knew a young preacher uh, who preached an entire lesson on Christ being our Passover and was asked by his elders not to preach that way anymore. What? That is very sad. Well, see, it's it's interesting that you say it because I was just thinking about how so often, <clears throat> when, you know, when we look at this, you know, what's going on with the crucifixion? There's jeering, there's mocking, you know, they're, they're all the things that you you wouldn't want Satan to be doing, right, in the face of God's great work being completed, right? But in the span of this, it's 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 a sense where, you know, I, I get the sense that, that man's going to do what man's going to do, okay? So, for example, someone resisting that kind of preaching, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. And, but yet God, I'm, I'm just thinking of Psalm two, for some reason, God laughs, you know, he, he, he's the one that's saying, you know, I'm the one that's victorious here. And, uh, you know, even, and I don't think that's completely applicable here in some ways because, you know, the Egyptians are defeated. They're, they're utterly destroyed. Uh, but in the sense of its comparison to the crucifixion, and all things that are happening right here, the seriousness with which God's people are taking this, their obedience to him in this. Um, I mean, the, the the glory of the cross, the shadow of that glory is all through this. And vice versa. John won't let you forget about the Passover through the entirety of the crucifixion narrative. Right. He brings up the Passover like four or five times, yeah. just in 18 and 19. So... Just in case you forgot, this is all Passover. (laughs) Just in case you weren't paying attention, this is what's going on in the background. During the time in which God is doing this great work, you have the enemies of Jesus trying to uh, hold on to the last vestiges of the old Mm. without even seeing that he was doing the new. And it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. I also like, too, um, in uh, verse 7, you know, the blood being on the doorposts. You know, so this would have been apparent to the enemies of the Israelites why they were being sheltered and protected. And I I wonder if there's a theme in the New Covenant that our redemption by the blood of Jesus, in a sense, should be it should be evident to people around us. That's the reason why we're sheltered. That's the reason why we have the peace that we have. That's the reason why we have the joy that we have is because of the fact that we are redeemed and we're sheltered by the blood of the Lamb. Are you saying we should get Jesus fishes for our cars? That's exactly not what I want. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking about these children a minute ago, and these are the children that eventually are the ones that conquer Canaan. Because all of the adults end up dying in the, in the, in the wilderness. Right, so anyone under 20. Under 20. So, I mean, right. the, the, you think about it. Obviously, their firstborns can be older than 20, but the children are still... Right, so there'll be many. There'll be many children that are leaving with them to go out of uh, Egypt at this time to go, and they're going to be the ones eventually that that, that take on Canaan. 
But I was thinking about Isaac in that. While his, he's the child of promise, the hand was stayed to him. And he's, he's eventually told that you're going to take, take on the same land. You're, that he's a, told to not go to Egypt and to stay in this land that his generations, or however the word is, would eventually own or possess this land. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that it's finally coming to pass. Right. Even though he's been there kind of the whole time, finally coming to pass with these children. Mm-hmm. Not only that, these are also the same children who would be reminded year after year, um, or they would be reminded that they were, had to be redeemed, and the parents would have to tell them, I have to sacrifice an animal because God saved you. Mm-hmm. And so there's an entire like element of this that he specifically says... Look, I kill this animal because God saved you, my firstborn. And so I'm redeeming you. I'm paying God for saving you functionally. Not paying, I guess that's wrong. And I think you see that there in verse number 12 at the end of that. The whole reason for this was to bring glory to God. Mm -hmm. I am the Lord. And isn't that the overall theme of the Bible, to bring glory to God? Yeah. Even Jesus being the perfect lamb. Why did he go to the cross? Well, we know it was for our sins, but he was doing what? Glorifying God through all of it. Doing his will. I was just realizing and thinking about how uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that at Jesus' death, it's a centurion. Specifically, each one, a centurion, not not a Jew, Mm. not a Pharisee, says, surely this was a righteous man, surely this was the Son of God. The Egyptians recognize some aspect of God's power here. The Gentiles see God's power, and and I think if we're again if we're paralleling, of course we're paralleling to the crucifixion. What are the Pharisees? What are the Jews? They're completely clueless in the face of the crucifixion. They think they've won, but they they have no idea. Uh, so you know, I don't know who the parallel with the Pharisees exactly would be in this storyline right now. But, you know, the main thing, I think, is that that God is showing his power to, at this time, I believe, one of the mightiest uh, forces in the world world at that time. Now, I want to mention as well, we've mentioned in in Exodus as well, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, Bryant, how I I personally believe that the Pharaoh of Exodus is not Ramesses II. Um, And we can have a short discussion on that. I don't want to take too long. But it makes a lot more sense to me for this to be, uh, if, you, if you look at some of the uh, uh, references, not in Scripture, but in history, to Tetmoses III, which is really interesting. If it's Tetmoses III, Tetmoses III is regarded as scholars as the mightiest pharaoh who ever lived. So it's possible that the Egypt that, that God defeated here is the mightiest that Egypt ever was. And I'm, I may be wrong on that, and that's outside of Scripture. I'm not putting that forward dogmatically. But most of the adaptations will put it in the time of Ramesses II. I don't think that's accurate. I'm welcome to any comments on that. Again, don't want to go too far with it. but I failed all my Egyptology classes. Okay. <laughs> I took none. I took none. I, 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 I looked on the internet. So. <laughs> I think this you is failed not a... yours too then. <laughs> so anyway. Wikipedia has failed you. But regardless of that, regardless of who the Pharaoh is here, I think it's important to note that you know, this is God being victorious. I think it's interesting just how much 
God wanted this to sink into the mind, you know, like the unleavened bread, the Sabbath upon the Sabbath, you know, and he's introducing a lot of symbols here. Yeah. Just like he wanted to engage. They, we talked about in Genesis, how in Genesis 15, when Abraham, you know, set up the halves of the animals and the fire passed through, there was a sense where Abraham was experiencing God's covenant that he was making. You know, he was experiencing the emotions and he was immersing himself in what God was promising. And I feel like that's kind of like what's happening here is God was making this covenant with them. And this, this was giving them this opportunity to immerse themselves into the nature of that covenant and really experience that and be changed by it. And I just think that's so much of, of the New Testament instruction is just as they were obedient here, everything that God commands is not arbitrary. Like in First Peter chapter 2, where he's giving command to servants to submit to their masters, even when they're harsh and cruel, he follows that up talking about how we've been called for the same purpose as Christ suffered for us, and by his stripes we are healed. So in the same way, like everything gets back to this idea that we are commanded to do what we're to do and to be what we're to be because it immerses us into the nature of the covenant, if that's what we're, we're thankful for, if that's what we're focused on. I don't know if you guys have any comments on that idea. Well, I, the immersing ourselves in God's covenant, I think, is also something that should be at the heart of our weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. Amen. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, Amen. He, the, the connections between this and, and, the, and the Lord's Supper that we observe every week are myriad. Yeah. Amen. But the, it's an existential thing. Mm. That is, the, in the doing it, the actual work of doing right. this, yes. we are weekly putting ourselves in a place to where we are able to consider what the meaning is of this covenant relationship that we have with God through so Christ. Good. Yeah, and we, you know, this I, this is not just a lamb. This was the perfect lamb. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the the life that was poured out, and we talk about this idea of Him protecting their firstborn. Uh, the irony is that he is giving his firstborn for them. So the very thing he's protecting them from having to do, he's doing himself. And, and with this, of course, we're, we're going into our application section because I think that's a perfect segue into this. Because, and I want to remind our listeners, uh, you know, you can look in Acts chapter twenty, verse seven, where it says, "Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them, continued his message till midnight. 
that that really establishes the precedent that Christians are to observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Some some religions and some faiths will say, well, once a year, twice a year, quarterly, that sort of thing. Uh, but it seems from the context here that this was every first day of the week. Uh, just for the sake of our listeners, I wanted to mention that. Well, no, and, and not only that, but that's a precedent that is set well before um, Paul even is upon that occasion because the mm-hmm. disciples meet the morning. They are meeting together eight days later. What we see is we see a pattern of them meeting on the first day of the week, and this is something that they were doing. And so uh, the regular meeting of them to to realize that their connection was to the Lord starts even before that. And, of course, we do see in the pattern that they were specifically gathered together to do that. And the irony of that, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, Paul was trying to get to Jerusalem for Passover. It is that very feast of Passover that he was trying to get to Jerusalem for, yet he waits an entire week so that he can meet with the saints Mm. to observe the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. Absolutely. And I mean, I agree totally with with the comparisons between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's it's, it's all there. Um, You know, and, and I think it's important to note, too, that, you know, Jesus, when he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples... Uh, I mean, you can just see in the text very plainly that what he does at that Passover meal with his apostles, it, it, it is a change. It is, it is something where they observe the Passover meal, and then they said, okay, now this is, this is my body. You know, take and eat, this is my body. I'm looking at, for example, Mark 14. But you can look at any of the Gospels, really, for this. Um, you know, this is my body. And then he takes the cup and he gave it to them. They all drank from it. Verse 24, this is the blood of my blood of the new covenant, which I shed for many, which is shed for many, excuse me. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And I, I love that verse in particular. Every time I study with Mark, uh, study with someone through Mark, I try to emphasize that verse because it tells us that, when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're partaking of it with the Lord. The Lord is partaking of that with us in a spiritual sense. We're in fellowship with Him right. each week when we do that. And uh, it, you know, just in context of what we're looking at here, that's the importance of this. You know, God was doing this along with them. God was part and parcel with that. Yes, sir. This is just me thinking out loud here, real quick, and, and talking about major themes we saw, and I don't think we pointed this out. And I'm thinking about the the law that was given, this covenant that was given to these people. And so many people that sometimes try to hold on to those old laws. I don't think we talked about that. Mm. But you see, especially in verse 41 of chapter 12, at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Well, that references back over to Galatians chapter 3. And it talks about the 430 years and, and how this law is no longer there. And we didn't talk about that, but that was, I was just thinking about maybe that's something we need to point out. No, that's, that's absolutely a point of application to recognize that this was for that nation yeah. and for that people. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've gotten in con- I, I've, I've talked to Seventh-day Adventists before that, you know, they, they will say the Tenth Ten Commandments are still, you know, active. You know, and they try to make a difference between the moral law and the, uh, I 
can't ceremonial remember. law. Ceremonial law, thank you. And uh, they try to separate that out, but the reality is it was all for that people. And now we are established as the true spiritual Israel. And then I think that that is wrapped up in the idea that when Jesus specifically gives him this, he takes an old covenant observance and specifically says, this is a new covenant. This is the mm-hmm. blood of, that's exactly what Moses said when they inaugurated the first. Jesus was telling them that there was a new covenant in his blood. And so people who find or may say things about feeling more fulfilled or feeling more close to God when they observe a Passover Seder than they do the Lord's Supper, I think are ignoring the fact that this is a new covenant. And Jesus specifically said that's what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Very well said. You know... One of the important things that just sort of comes to my mind with all this, I mean, just and, and maybe this is just too obvious, but again, sometimes we have to get obvious, right? Obey God, do what He says, and you'll be saved, yeah, right? That actually relates to First Peter chapter one. Uh, so, I think this was supposed to actually teach Israel to love one another, you know, and I think so much. In the New Testament emphasizes I'm not like John would often say it's not a new commandment but an old commandment I'm teaching you that you should love one another because reflecting on the basis of the covenant and how God has been my neighbor teaches me how to see other people as my neighbor as an extension of that so you know as they would meditate on how God had redeemed them that he had given them this lamb that he had brought them out of bondage that he was redeeming them to himself and bringing them together nationally they would do this congregationally while also they'd been individually saved by being, you know, this firstborn aspect of it all. Well, in First Peter 1, verse 18 begins talking about how they were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold from the futile way of life inherited from their forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And it mentions how this has all been done for you so that you could set your hope in God, just like the Exodus. God was drawing them to himself. Verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. And along with that, notice what the major failing was of the Corinthian congregation regarding the Lord's Supper. It wasn't the, it wasn't the elements they were using wrong. Uh, it was their attitude of not loving each other by setting up groups where you had some higher than the other you had the idea where people were using wealth as a basis on, upon which to judge uh, different tribes. So the basic violation of the Lord's Supper that he addresses is their inherent or, or is their failure in attitude. Yeah, that's that's ideally it is, is it is observing the Lord's Supper in the right manner. The evidence of that being done appropriately will be a more fervent love toward the brethren, a greater drive to want to obey God out of thankfulness and humility for what he's done. Now I'll say this too. I, I've never, I've never slaughtered a lamb. I've never yeah. gone through that process, but I, I just, it's hard for me to think of this as something that's just really difficult to do. Um, and, and maybe I'm wrong about all that. I, I've had, you know, relatives of mine that have gone on that have done things like that. I hear stories about, 
my great grandpa having goat roasts and things like that, you know. So people have done that within the past like, you know, hundred years. People still do that. But uh, you know, the whole the whole thing here is that, you know, people people will complain about really every Sunday. Doesn't that take away from the specialness of it? Does that make it doesn't that like normalize it? Um, you know, I, I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts about that and, and some reactions to that. If you want to complain about doing this every Sunday, here's a lamb, here's a knife, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there was a yearly feast. He did that, and it and it, and it it's a it's a whole lot messier. Yeah. And really, to me, I mean, the partaking of the Lord's Supper on every first day of the week compounds its specialness. Yes, amen. Because getting to become face-to-face with the Lord's death every first day of the week makes it just that more, much more real in your mind what your sins have caused you to do, what your sins have caused God to sacrifice, and ultimately propelling you to do more with the life that you now have. Yeah. Let me ask this question real quick. I, I, I agree, and I'm 100% on board. Of we are to do this every first day of the week. But... What do we do when we find ourselves struggling for going through the motions with that? I know we're talking, you know, application, talking about the Lord's Supper, how important it is. How do we make it and keep it real every Sunday? Yeah. One thing I just noticed in the reading, um, you know, in, in chapter 12, verse 3, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father. It, it makes me think of, you know, going back to, for example, 1 Corinthians 11. Where you have this precedence of self-examination. Uh, so uh, back in First Corinthians eleven and verse twenty-eight, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who dr- eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Um, I've, I've quoted uh, Edmund Hillary before. In talking about the Lord's Supper, he has a famous quote where he says, "It's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves." Uh, he he uh, hiked up Everest and he he scaled Everest, and but he he was saying he in that quote I think really is a comparable idea that that this is an internal thing. This is something where we're looking at ourselves. Um, each man had to take that lamb for himself. Each man had to make that decision. Am I going to be faithful to this? Am I going to do this or not? What would have happened to those to, who did not do this? Um, you know, history records, and I, I don't. Maybe this doesn't belong in this discussion, but history records. Josephus records that when the Romans actually came and destroyed Jerusalem, there were no Christians left in Jerusalem. They'd already left. They'd, they'd gone. Uh, so I don't know if that's one hundred percent true or not. But the point being. That, that if we just simply focus and say, I'm going to obey God and do our best to think about this from an internalized point, um, you know, can, can thoughts jump in there? Sure. Uh, there, there, I can't tell you the number of Sundays that, that I've gone through. And I, I just, I know I haven't, I haven't done this properly. Like I was not thinking about the right things. I, I didn't train you, and, and maybe that's part of it, training our mind to, to have that right kind of focus over time. Well, I think um, when you add children into that discussion, oh boy, that makes a, you know, another thing to work through. Right, right. Because, I mean, you, you're in the middle of trying to take care of them, and yes, yeah, no, totally. Yes, sir. 
I want to talk about something that I think sometimes accidentally creeps into our thinking on this partaking the Lord's Supper and what we are to focus on. I think a lot of times we had this idea of examining or or the one who, um, who he, he not judged the body rightly in verse 29 in chapter 11. I think sometimes we have this idea is that we have to think enough about how gory it was or how <laughs> torturous it was. Or we just have to be so... We have to replay the passion of the, uh, the Mel Gibson's passion in our minds yeah. in slow mo every Sunday. We've got to have Jim Caviezel in We've our heads. We've got to have Jim Caviezel. <laughs> what? I don't know that that's what he's talking about in the context, because the body of the Lord in that case, or the, or the body rightly, or, or considering who they are, that's the body of believers. Right. He doesn't say you guys are not spending enough time on torture porn. He says that you guys are not thinking about your brothers and sisters right. I think what helps keep it special to me is to look around and see these other people that I consider are able to partake of the same salvation that I am. We all needed that sacrifice equally. Every one of us was freed the same way. Just as the people of Israel were completely incapable of removing themselves from Egyptian captivity, everyone in that building... And indeed, every saint who's partaking of it, nationwide, worldwide, throughout history, we're all equally incapable of saving themselves. Mm-hmm. And therefore, when I, when I think about that, it does help me to keep my, my mind on things, even when I've got my little rugrats biting at my ankles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, just the very reason that you've, you're, you've, you're able to have the rugrats, right? Amen. I mean, that's God's grace and mercy, and that's that's what we need to kind of focus on. I, th- I appreciate that so much yeah. because, we, we, you know, and, and we ought to be mentioning, you know, those of us who are Christians in our congregations, we need to be mentioning this is not just about the death of Christ. This is about the resurrection of Christ just as much. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with us thinking about, you know, Mary uh, and, you know, the other women going to the tomb and seeing it empty and, and seeing the angels saying, he's not here, he's risen. And just to remember how all that happened. Remember the, remember the disbelief of the, the, uh, apostles and the other disciples. Remember, uh, remember Thomas saying, I'm not going to believe unless I see it. And, and Jesus happily giving that evidence. Um, you know, I, I think, and this is what's amazing about the Lord's Supper too, um, it's not just one event that we can look at. There are so many places we can go in Scripture. And I, I appreciate when a brother gets in front of the congregation and brings up a passage from the prophets to talk about the Lord's Supper. I mean, I'm just like, how awesome is that? You know, I mean, and, and, and it's no less awesome when you bring up one of the Gospels and read about, you know, the Last Supper. And that, that's fine. That's great. Uh, but, you know. These are the connections we can make because uh, that that brings it up to a level of importance that will help us keep these things in mind. I know that sometimes we get a little bit squidgy about talking to people about who can and cannot partake of the Lord's Supper. I know that's an uncomfortable conversation. I know that sometimes it makes it awkward to talk to them. But when we tell them who it is really for, we are still observing the spirit of the Passover in that way too. It was specifically mentioned in Exodus 12 that the people who were partaking of the Passover were only the children of only the circumcised children of Israel. If you were an outsider and you wanted to partake, that's fine. You and all your males are circumcised. Functionally, you become a part of the nation of Israel, and then 
and only then can you partake of this memorial feast. So maybe we need to get over how awkward it is to tell people. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. As far as like things that help with clarity from the original Passover, I know one thing I've struggled with in the past, and maybe if you guys disagree, you know, I'm open to being off base about this, but you know, in the past, I think thought that the Lord's Supper was a time where I'm supposed to relive the guilt of my old sins that have been forgiven and like almost like put myself back into the position of that guilt again and it was less focused on what 1 Corinthians 11 is focused on but it was more me remembering all these terrible things, simple things that I've done and just kind of remembering how bad I am as a person. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Uh, You almost make it this Lord's Supper is now about me right? and it's not. It's about what Christ has done for not only me, but for all of mankind. It's remembering Him. Right. I don't have to go back to the very beginning of my mistakes to think about things I feel guilty about. I just go back to the last week. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing is remembering God's grace more as I recognize more my need. And how amazing it is that, like, just something small that's very convicting to me is I know I there's so much more time that can be given to God for prayer, for thanks, and just for God to give himself fully to me and to be reminded that I'm not giving God anything back for all that he's doing, but he's not changing his faithfulness. This, the Lord's Supper teaches me that God is constantly recommitting the fullness of what Jesus did all the time, despite my unworthiness. And I think that brings up another application what we see in this is deliverance. Amen. Right. Because at the at verse fifty one, on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel. Brought the, uh, on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt right. by their host. Right. In the end, isn't that what we're after? Yeah. Exactly. God was giving Himself to the people through the Passover. Well, in in in, in another way, I mean, you think about like. Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Mm-hmm. You think about um, even to the point that like Romans brings about the end of Romans, right? Is that we've now been set free from the bondage of the sins. Right. And that's, that's, that's the Passover is that they've now been set free from Egypt and now are partaking of this, yeah. this memorial that reminds them of how they came from yes. the bondage. Amen. And so, I mean, it's, it's the same thing for us is that we have to be able to remember the freedom that is now in Christ because of that, the sacrifice that was made for us. Yes, that's so good. I might be stretching with this, but I'm thinking about 1241. It came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. I know we have different translations here. Does anybody have a different hosts. term than armies, the hosts? Mm-hmm. Well, host army is the same thing. I mean, I, I, I love that because this is a slave people. Who are they going to fight? I mean, you know. Yeah. And so, again, why is, why is Moses saying it this way? If not to help us think about the fact that now, from our perspective, we are soldiers for Christ. And there is a responsibility toward that to right. to, to be his. And y'all, y'all may have already mentioned that. Um, but uh, hmm. So I want to give um, a little bit of a different application of this. Uh this is more an application of attitude. Um, and this relates to the, just coming out of Egypt and all these things. 
uh, and this might sound kind of strange if you're listening. This might be almost like an uncomfortable application. Um, but in Revelation 19, uh, this is something you see throughout Scripture, is the righteous celebrate the destruction of the wicked. Um, in Revelation 18, there's this great harlot, this Babylon that's judged and destroyed. And in chapter 19, there's an explosion of God's creation who are serving him, pronouncing hallelujah, uh, verse 1, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And it just goes on over and over again with hallelujahs. Something I've been thinking about lately um, that's helped me, uh, I think, like, attach to this attitude more is thinking about how I will never have true unity with God until the wicked are destroyed. And the barrier between me and my God is the wicked. The barrier between Israel and redemption and having fellowship with God was, and so until Egypt died and was destroyed, they would never be with God. Uh, I think we need to be very careful how we apply that properly. Yes. But and I'm not I'm not trying to delegitimize what you're saying, but you know, just from the standpoint that you know, it's not up to us to take care of the wicked. And I'm right. I'm, I'm plugging that into what yeah. you're saying. But I agree with you wholeheartedly that there is the sense that you know we can't be with God forever right. until this earth is destroyed. Yeah. Doesn't does that make sense to everybody? What I'm saying. Yes. No, final judgment is the is the day that we're waiting for. Exactly. That's so much exactly. like the, much like the topic we we're talking about tonight, and you think about Psalms one thirty seven, which we were talking about tonight. Exactly. You, you think about yes. Um, I think about Thessalonians second first Thessalonians chapter five. The day of anticipation is the day that we're saved. The right. day that we're that the Lord comes back. The day that destruction happens. Yeah. For all of those who are wicked in the sight of God. I mean, you yeah. go back. You go to second Thessalonians chapter one, and that's the thing that happens is those who are far from God are the ones who are destroyed, the ones who haven't obeyed the gospel. Yes. So if we want to be saved, if we want to be on the right side of that and be hastening the day of God to happen and for his ultimate destruction of, of the wicked, then we have to kind of have that perspective in a sense. Right. At the same time, I also am commanded to share God's will that all come to repentance. That's right. Exactly. And so... So the destruction of the wicked is kind of strange because I also have to, at the same time, want every human being to be saved. Amen. And it's a yes. weird dichotomy yes. of feelings. And God's power is the only one that is right enough, and his wisdom mm-hmm. is the only one that is clean enough to be able to make those distinctions, and thus it is his job. It. I can be happy that justice is served, and I will be happy when justice is served. But at the same time, I'm not going to do anything that would stand in the way of someone being able to come to repentance. Right. Because if you want if you want to be with the Lord, you want as many people to share that, that joy as possible. And I think when you talk about you can't have that unity until evil is destroyed. You're not necessarily talking about people. Right. Yes. And that's what we need to make sure we're talking yes. about. We're not saying the wicked people need to be destroyed. As was mentioned, yeah. we want them to come to repentance. Yes. That's what God desires for them. That's what we right. need to desire for them. We're talking when Satan is destroyed. Right. 
Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is, is that is that God believes that we have the power to reason with both of those. Mm. He he gives us the knowledge at least to know Amen. there's a destruction that's coming, and you use that as motivation, right? To 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 reach out to the lost. Second Corinthians five: By the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Right. Yeah. Well, fellas, thank you so much for being a part of this. It's always a joy. Thank uh, you for having us. Yeah. Anyone, anyone have anything else to add before we finish up? No, I'm just glad that you did the study. Thanks for putting it together, man. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, until next time, study well and be lights to God's glory. Music used in this program is graciously provided by Symphonia. Symphonia is a nonprofit foundation whose purpose is to compose, publish, and promote hymns for congregational worship. Find out more at symphonia.com.